Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We're going to unpack this this morning as we look into God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it brings salvation, that it declares that which you alone can do and uh, giving salvation to fallen human beings. Father, what a gracious God you are, as we've already read and declared. And so we would pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to receive your word today according to your knowledge of who we are and what we need. In thy name we ask it. Amen. Have you ever had someone give you a gift just because they wanted to? It wasn't your birthday. It wasn't an anniversary or any kind of a holiday. They were not trying to make up with you after a fight. They were not trying to get you to do something for them. They gave you a gift just because they wanted to give it. I know I've experienced this on several occasions. Uh, I think I've related to many of you how when we were seeking the Lord as to whether we were supposed to go to Marquette, Kansas, um, one of the challenges in uh, leaving Norfolk and going to Marquette was we were going to take a $10,000 cut in salary. Right at a time when we had been talking about how we needed to start saving for <laughs> retirement. And uh, went to bed one night and had a dream. And in the dream, um, we visited a family that was on our schedule to visit. And uh, as we were leaving that family, the guy offered me a check for $10,000. And I woke up the next morning and I thought, I ate too much pizza. <laughs> you know, because God had never talked to me through dreams or anything like that before. And then I went to my office at church, and uh, Steve Schroeder, who many of you would know, uh, called me, and he said, Pastor, he said, we have a gift of $10,000 for you. How would you like it? And I think my exact words were, that's interesting. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I'm... Sure, Steve was thinking, well, that's a weird response for, I just told him he's going to get $10,000, you know. God was revealing to us that we were supposed to go to Marquette and that he was perfectly capable of supplying whatever our needs were. And don't worry about supply if I've called you to a place. And we went to Marquette and, and uh, God uh, supplied for us in many ways and we had a wonderful ministry there. So when you receive such a gift, you're experiencing what the Greeks called grace. Uh, such a gift would fill you with joy. As a matter of fact, this concept of grace was so close to the hearts of the Greek people that their common greeting of joy was derived from this word. But when the Apostle Paul speaks of grace in Titus 2.11, he's speaking of a gift far greater than that usually enjoyed in the Greek culture. And what Paul is speaking of brings a more lasting and deeper joy 
than the circumstantial happiness of a cheery greeting or even of a substantial financial gift. I think God's magnificent grace is part of what the angels long to look into and understand about God's relationship with us. I think we'll be talking about and proclaiming God's grace for eternity. But I want today, today to help us lay a little bit of a foundation for our understanding. When Paul speaks of grace, he means more than a simple material gift. So defined positively, it means to look upon one with favor or blessing. It's an attitude as well as an action. It is a kindness. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 shows this in Christ's example. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Grace demands nothing in return. It is entirely selfless in the giving. Altruistic is a word that describes its character. It issues out of the giver. The recipient of grace cannot do anything to cause it to exist in somebody else. Someone of their own free will must determine and decide to exercise grace. Of course, that's what God chose to do in relation to us. Perhaps we can get an even better idea of what grace is through defining what it is not. Uh, grace is not wages. That is, you cannot earn grace. Romans 4.4 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Wages are something you deserve for the work you do or the service you provide. Wages are not a gift. They are a just compensation, hopefully. Now, even spiritually speaking, we've earned wages. We have a just compensation coming to us for the spiritual work that we've done in the flesh. That wage is described in Romans 6.23a, where it says, For the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. The unusual circumstance this puts us in is this. Part of the reason we need grace is because of the wages we have earned. We have earned death by virtue of our works, which without God are all sinful works. Wages are things given that focus on the obligation of the employer to compensate for benefits received. They're a sort of payment in kind. They're in exchange for worth. Grace also is not works. You do not pile up grace or accumulate grace. What I mean is this. You cannot do enough gracious deeds toward others to somehow get an exchange of grace from God. Works thinking focuses upon the merits of the worker and his deeds. Here is the problem. You cannot do enough good deeds to in any way obligate God to be gracious to you. God is altogether justified in condemning your sorry self for eternity for the sins that you already committed by the time you begin to understand that you've been sinning. Here's another part of it. If God were in any way obligated to you, grace would not be grace. Romans 11.6 says this, But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. 
and what was read earlier, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God made grace the way that we get salvation, so that nobody can brag that I really earned my salvation. I deserve this. No, none of us deserve salvation. Grace is not law. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Law focuses on legal entitlement. And there are several ways you may become legally entitled to something. By covenant or contract, you enter into a contract in which you gain certain entitlement or consideration based upon the terms of the covenant or the contract. Or by citizenship. Because you are a citizen of a particular country, and as a citizen you pay taxes and fulfill other requirements of citizenship loyalty, you are entitled to certain considerations that the government bestows on all of its citizens. Or by birth and a will. Because you belong to a certain family, you become entitled to rights of inheritance within that family structure. Now, if any of these is operative, is the operative focus of the relationship, grace is not operative. Because in order for grace to be grace, you cannot be legally entitled to the favor or the blessing or the gift bestowed. So we understand then, that the quality of grace is something that entirely benefits the one who receives it, but it entirely belongs to and issues from the one who gives it. It is dependent upon the giver for what it accomplishes, for what it costs, for how appropriate it is to the recipient, for when it is given and who gets to receive it. So the next question in Titus 2.11 is, well, whose grace is it that Paul is writing about. And it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. It, the verse says this grace is of God. That is, it's God's grace. And the ramifications of this are astounding. Because this grace is God's grace, it means that all the resources available to God are potentially available to God's application of this grace. Let's just consider this for a minute. Who could potentially be more gracious to someone? A wealthy man or a poor man? Well, we would generally think that the wealthy man could be more gracious because the amount of resources that he would have available for giving would be greater than that of the poor man. Well, who could potentially be more gracious to someone? The powerful or the weak? Well, we would generally think that the powerful would be better able to have freedom and ability to extend grace. Of course, no one is more powerful than God, and no one is more wealthy than God, no matter what Joe Biden says. He famously said, they're making more money than God. No. Nobody makes more money than God. God is the author of it all. He already owns it all. Let's take our thought another direction. The blessing bestowed will be proportionate 
to the generosity of the heart of the bestower combined with the ability of the bestower to give it. So the question is, how generous is God's heart? How generous is God's heart? We've already considered that he has unlimited ability because he created it all and he owns everything and he's sovereign over everything. So how loving is God in terms of his willingness to give? Here's a familiar verse that describes that pretty well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here's another astounding thought. The recipient of this grace is God's enemy rather than his friend. In the Greco-Roman culture of that day, grace was never given to an enemy. It was only extended toward a friend. And it was generally just close friends that would receive grace. Because God chose to deal with man according to grace, he had to bestow this blessing of grace upon his enemies because we had all become his enemies through the fall and through our sin, all who sin are enemies of God. <coughs> Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now whether we would admit it to ourselves or not, the truth is before anyone comes to faith in Christ, he or she is a child of the devil, following his promptings and the desires of the flesh, and are on the opposite side of God's side. That's the truth of Scripture. But what does God do with his grace? Listen to this. Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God chose for reasons of his own that have nothing to do with our merit to extend grace toward us sinful, fallen, morally depraved human beings. Marquette, we used to have a motorcycle rally every May. And I remember going to the motorcycle rally one time, and this guy with a leather jacket had a saying on the back. And when I saw it, I, I think I was walking with my wife, and I said, well, there goes a Calvinist, this biker. And she said, what, what do you mean? And I said, well, John Calvin taught that we are all totally morally without any merit for salvation. The saying on the biker jacket was bad to the bone. <laughs> That's all of us. We are all bad to the bone. That's theologically correct. We are all bad to the bone. We are enemies of God and not deserving of any love and mercy to be extended toward us. The truth is part of what makes God's grace toward us so amazing. 
Because this grace from God toward man benefits man, it is a grace that must somehow bridge the gap between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And it does this in Jesus Christ. Now back in Titus 2.11, it goes on to tell us what this grace of God does. It says, it brings salvation. It brings salvation. Here's some of what Paul is thinking about when he uses this term. Salvation accomplishes many things in terms of our relationship to God. These things are all blessings, though they have negative elements. That is, there are things that are taken away from us. And they have positive elements. That is, things that are credited to us or added to us through this process called salvation. Let me give you a couple of verses that kind of sum it up, and then I'll unpack this very quickly. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Colossians 1, 21 and 22, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, that's that enemy position that we were in, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So what does salvation mean? Negatively, God through salvation rescues us from guilt. That is true moral guilt, not just guilt feelings. We are declared not guilty as a verdict in heaven's court through salvation. How can that happen? The guilt was laid upon Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how that can happen. And so God says, your guilt was already paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm going to declare you not guilty when you're in Christ. Secondly, we're delivered from slavery. This, again, is a, a legal position. Whereas before salvation, we were under obligation to the domain of darkness. Therefore, Satan and sin have a legal right to boss us around and order us into self-destructive sinful behavior. When we are in Christ, we have been liberated from that kingdom, from that king, from that slavery, and we have a new master, righteousness that we can choose to follow day by day. Part of our struggle with sin is that our old master's sin and the devil don't give up trying to order us around. We have to learn to walk in liberty and not listen to that old master, to realize that he cannot make us be subject to his control anymore. Third, punishment. We're delivered from punishment. Punishment is taken away from us. There's three elements of this. The first element of punishment is alienation from God. This is part of our pre-Christ relationship toward God. We're not citizens of his heaven. We are not members of his family, and we are foreigners to God. After salvation, we are citizens of heaven. We belong there because without Christ, we are alienated from God. We cannot have a sense of his presence in comfort because we can't receive the Holy Spirit. God seems far off and distant and perhaps even fearful rather than having a loving friend that we get to know after we experience salvation. We're delivered from the wrath of God. When we find salvation, we find deliverance from having to experience God's wrath toward us. 
This wrath is actually being withheld from us, having a full experience of it until after Christ's return for his bride in the rapture of the church. And we're delivered from everlasting death. Without salvation, our destiny is eternal separation from God and being cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. Now let me just make a comment here. Some people think, no, no, no. The lake of fire can't be true. That, that's just kind of pictures of warnings. God's too kind to prepare such a place for actual people. Let me give you a perspective. I think we have very little idea of how great an offense it is to God to reject his gift of salvation that was purchased at the cost of the crucifixion of his son. Imagine how angry you would be towards someone that had been a captive of a cruel enemy and you sent your son to rescue that captive. And he went and he gave his life and that captive said, no thanks, I think I'll just continue to live here in the tiger cage. Uh, after all, my captor gives me a meal each day and hasn't killed me yet. All you're offering me is a promise of a mansion and freedom. Yes, I realize your son died to rescue me, but I didn't ask him to do that, and he gives you attitude. How much compassion would you have for such a person? Not lots. How offensive is it to God who gave his son on the cross and allowed him to suffer all of that torture and death for you? And then you say, well, I didn't ask him to do that. God knew it was necessary to deliver you from your sin, to deliver you from eternal condemnation before him. This is part of our deliverance in accepting God's free gift of salvation. But there's more to this concept than just the escape from judgment. There are positive results as well. So positively, it bestows upon men a state of righteousness you know, Christ always did the right thing. All his life, he always did what was pleasing to his heavenly Father. And when we get the gift of salvation, we get credit for all the right things that Jesus already did. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an incredible statement that God can look at me through salvation in Christ as just as righteous as he is. We're granted freedom. This is the opposite condition of slavery. It's experienced in walking in step with the Spirit of God. Let me compare it to having a, a guide through a minefield as opposed to having an outline of minefields in general. You see, this life is filled with minds of all kinds of behaviors and attitudes that can blow up in your face and wound you. And God gave the law through Moses as a sort of master plan of the way Satan sets up his minefields. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Whoa. But boy, I... I really love my family. You know, your family can become a God that you put before God. 
Well, I, I, I really, I, I have to sacrifice myself for my farm. You know, your farm can become an idol that you put before God, your business. That's a mine. You can step on it. And boy, it can blow up your spiritual life. And that's, the law is for that. It gives us an outline of the way Satan works. God gave the law through Moses as that sort of master plan of the way Satan sets up his minefields. It's like being trained to look for the signs of mines yourself and a general map, not a specific map of your life, but a general map of minefield layout. Avoid these things and you won't get wounded. You won't get blown up. But having the Holy Spirit is like having a guide who will tell you where to step if you will walk with him and follow his voice step by step by step. And he knows the minefield exactly that you are walking through. And that's greater freedom than being under the law. Blessedness. Again, three elements. The first is fellowship with God, which is the opposite of alienation. And then there is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Here is where you have ongoing experiences of God carrying you and loving you and being good to you and affirming you and using you to show his love to others. What an incredible experience it is to have God use you to show his love to somebody else. And then everlasting life. This could be a topic for about a year of preaching. It's life that is to be experienced in the here and now as the abundant life of which Jesus speaks in John 10.10. And it is also the life to be experienced in the hereafter when we live with God in heaven and when we get our resurrection bodies and have the imperishable bodies that gloriously reflect our Lord and we dwell with him forever and ever and we're not sitting on clouds playing harps. Well, some of us might. <laughs> but it'll be heavenly music if we are. And it will be our joy to do it. We'll be doing things that God has equipped us to do that will glorify him for eternity. What a blessing. That's God's plans for us. Well, now we can see that the substance of the gift of this grace is a tremendous thing. It is grace that brings salvation with all of these benefits and blessings that I've just described. And this description is just scratching the surface of salvation. But since grace is entirely at the disposal of the giver, questions remain. Well, who does God give this grace resulting in salvation to? And when does it come to earth? The answers to that describe man's opportunity. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Has appeared. It says that this grace has appeared. This speaks, first of all, of the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of the grace gifts of God. The translations of the Greek word translated appeared is the word epiphany. It means a shining forth like the dawning of the sun. We see this in scripture refer to the incarnation of Christ in Malachi uh, 4.2 and Luke 1.79. So this grace was first 
bestowed upon man in the coming of Jesus Christ, in his virgin birth, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, in his triumphant resurrection. Christ presented to mankind the bridge that transports God's loving flavor and blessing from his holy presence into our sin-dominated existence, the trash heap of this world. And it also brings us to him. He is the bridge. Now Christ appears. He shines the light into people individually also by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this involves conviction of the Holy Spirit when you hear the gospel. Uh, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians saying, Known brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, Paul had witnessed to them and he saw God work and them turn from idols and start to follow Jesus Christ. Through the course of the years in ministry, I've had the privilege of leading many people to faith in Christ. And I can sit down at a kitchen table or something and visit with them and, and start sharing the gospel. And many times I can see the Holy Spirit working. My wife and I stopped in to see a store owner in, in Norfolk that was a part of my last church. I remember the first time I shared the gospel with him. I could see the Holy Spirit working and he was starting to get nervous and sweating and, and uh, God was bringing conviction to him. And he said, well, I think I've heard enough. And so I walked away. But God wasn't done. I got another chance to share with him. I remember baptizing him down at Timberlake Ranch Camp. And he's living for the Lord today. What a blessing. John 6, 8, 16, 8 says, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There is a real sense in which we describe this as an epiphany. Many times people have heard the gospel again and again and never responded. And then one day, you know, the lights come on for them. And they are convicted about their sinful condition. And it's as if for the first time they see themselves as God sees them in their need. It involves the illumination of the Holy Spirit, which John 16 goes on to say, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and disclose it to you and all things that the father has are mine. And therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. We need to wake up to that light of Christ that's shining upon us through the Holy Spirit and then respond. I want you to understand that we're not talking about seeing a literal vision of Jesus standing in front of you. There's not anything spooky about this. It means that you will understand in your inner person the truth of the claims of Jesus Christ and his love for you. You'll know he wants to have you as part of his forever family, his kingdom, and give you this grace and this salvation. Well, then who can take it? says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. God's grace is offered to all, but not all will be saved. 
Many passages teach clearly that not everyone will be saved. Ephesians 5, 5, and 6, and Revelation 20, 14, and 15, and 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9, they all show that not everyone will be saved. So if grace is offered to all, but not all will be saved, who will be saved? And who can be a recipient of this grace? Well, anyone can be a recipient who will repent, that is, turn around. 2 Peter 3.9 puts it this way, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. To repent means to turn around or to change your mind from the direction you're going and to go the other direction. So it, what this means is, if I'm going in the direction that leads to hell, then I turn around and I go in the direction that leads to heaven. Well, pastor, why'd you make such a big arrow for hell and a little arrow for heaven? Because broad is the way and easy is the way that leads to destruction, the Bible tells us. And narrow is the way and steep is the path that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it. How do they find it? Well, they turn around. <laughs> they turn around. They trust in Jesus. So if I'm going in the direction that leads to being under God's wrath, I turn around. And I go in the direction that leads to being under God's blessing. That's what repentance is. So if I'm going in the direction of living for myself, I turn around. And I go in the direction of living for God. A second aspect of salvation is that you must put your hope of salvation in Jesus Christ because the grace of God as salvation is in Christ. Colossians 1.14, for he rescued us, that is Christ rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. You know, you cannot be saved by confessing Buddha or Muhammad or Krishna or the great spirit of the tree or the white buffalo or, you know, whatever else you want to believe in. Jesus Christ is the only way. Because he is the only one who laid down his life for you and was capable of taking your sin upon his body and having you declared righteous before God. Salvation is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 through 13 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now the question is this. Have you received God's grace in Christ by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you placed your hope of eternal life on the work and life that Christ has given for you? 
Or are you still hoping and trying to be good enough on your own or in, in some other way to work your way to heaven? If you've never received Christ as Savior, you can do so today. And then you'll know that you're included in those who have had God's grace applied to their lives. You can begin living under the grace of God. You can begin following Jesus as your Savior and guide. I put together a prayer that you can pray if you want to make that decision. And you can pray it silently right now. Dear Heavenly Father, you've opened my eyes today to the fact that I have not received your grace. I realize that I am a sinner and that my sin has brought me your condemnation and sentence of eternal separation from you. Please forgive me for my sin and make me part of your forever family. Today, I turn around from living for myself and want to live for you. Thank you for the forgiveness that you can give me because of what Jesus did on the cross. I want Christ to come into my life and guide me by your Holy Spirit as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say something. There's no magic in those words. God reads our hearts and knows our mind. And if you go, well, pastor, I think that was a little too blurry for me. I couldn't get it all there. But you're saying, God, I want you in my life. However you're saying it, God will read your heart. And he will come in and give you his gift of eternal life and salvation. He's given us a promise when we do this. It's in John 1.12. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you prayed that prayer, if you asked Christ to come into your life today, I want to encourage you to do something. Tell someone. Tell someone that's close to you. I did that today. I did that today. Tell someone that you know already has that peace with God through God's grace. And let them know, yes, I trusted Christ as my Savior today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gospel. We thank you that you are a gracious God, that you will not be angry with us forever, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You, God, are great, and you have made salvation possible. We thank you for this wonderful gift. And we pray, Father, your blessing for any who have trusted you today, that they would grow in their knowledge of you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.